But yeah, I just, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. It's not because I'm not ambitious and it's not because I don't have the capability. It's just like, I don't want to do it like that. And I don't want to, my ambition is to live a full embodied life. Hi everybody. I'm Pat McMahon. Hi, I am Michelle McCrary. Uh, and I'm super, super excited to be talking with Michelle as an introduction for her conversation with Amy Yoshitsu um, as another episode of Bring Your Full Self, uh, which is a podcast that we're doing as a part of Converge Collaborative. Michelle, I'm super appreciative of having gotten to listen firsthand um, to the conversation that you and Amy were having, and even more so when I went back and revisited it. Um, I think the the fact that you guys navigated so many different conversational topics, uh, so many similarities and areas of overlap between you guys. Um, I love the way you spoke about being only children. I liked uh, listening to you talk about the, the various aspects of passion for music. Um, and, and then all of the ways that you were, you know, setting up conversations around work, identity, and creativity in all of the ways that we're hoping um, to achieve with Converge. I just thought it was really such a fantastic conversation. So um, a huge thank you uh, to you and Amy. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Pat. And then thanks to Amy and Lewis for inviting me into the Converge journey. I feel like um, I've been looking for Converge but not knowing it and wanting to be in a space that felt more supportive um, inside of the system where the priority is like earn money at all costs. Mm -hmm. Um, There, I mean, there are sacrifices that you have to make of course, in life, but I feel like the trade-off just to make a living, it feels, um, it feels all or nothing, which is, which is basically how this culture is set up, you know, a culture of scarcity, a culture of all or nothing, and it's always a fight to find balance, and I always felt like, you know, um, I was doing something wrong in the world of work. <laughs> like I, maybe I'm the one who's not getting this right. You know, maybe I'm the one who is not like settling into this kind of way of being. I'm not work life balancing well enough. Um, and when I met Amy initially, um, when I was working on an artist residency program and she came through as an artist in re- residence, um, a colleague of mine and a friend of mine was just she's like, you've just got to talk to Amy. Like, I know you're <laughs> going to talk to all the artists, but you two really have to talk. And we did. And it was like this instant connection. Um, and then I think after that talk or the second time we spoke, she kind of gave me the information about Converge to see if I'd be interested in, you know, coming on board as like, you know, a social member initially, Um, you know, it's a workers co-op and you and Amy 
Um, and then there are other folks who are kind of in, you know, in the origin story of Converge who created it. But um, yeah, I was like, wow, this is really crazy that there's all these people and we kind of had these similar experiences yes. in the workplace. Yep, absolutely. And I did not feel so alone. And even though there are people that I know from, you know, my life, you know, working in a bunch of different places, we've sort of commiserated about these things. Um, the sense I get from them is that, you know, A, that's kind of like in some places, some cases where they want to be or they've made a piece for themselves to be in that place with all of its like horror sometimes and all of its draining. And um, they weren't looking for like a way out in the way that I was. Um, a, a way out in the sense of like trying to create something different and not just kind of go back to another version of that. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, well, first of all, I just want to say Converge is so much better for having you in it. The perspective that you bring and the knowledge that you have, it, it like really... All the ways that I love the way you talk about your knowledge of the dark arts, the communication and PR and, and how to, to message things. And, and now the way that you've talked about bringing that skill set to, to this work and have it, you know, not be used for the dark arts, so to speak, anymore of, of, you know, big corporate advertising. I just think the perspective you bring is so wonderful. And I can relate so much to the way that you're talking about. Um, just now and in conversation with Amy, the way that you were talking about feeling like the, the success in a, in a workspace was not set up for you, you know, that, that it felt like you were doing something wrong because you weren't seeing the, the same kind of path to success that was laid out as the, the primary road for success in, in these kind of corporate work environments. Um, I can relate immensely to that. You know, I've, I too felt like I was doing something wrong. I didn't feel like it was, um, I felt like there was something inherently off about the way that I was approaching it. And I was really looking for some alternative that I didn't know existed until I was in conversation with Amy about it. You know, I think, I think her vision for creating something new is so easy to follow because she's been able to so clearly articulate the way that it, it can exist. Um, and I don't know about, uh, you know, I, I wonder, I'm curious, I guess, do you feel like you are the type of person that um, is able to visualize these kinds of differences or changes or new structures? Because um, I certainly don't feel that way. I, I, I feel lifted by Amy's yeah. vision and our yeah. collective effort, you know? Yeah, I, I know that I have a vision um, for sure. And I can imagine ways of being and living. But I also realize that I am a person who is in a constant state of healing mm. and a constant state of... Um, undoing like undoing all of the stuff that we have been kind of acculturated to um 
And that to me feels like part of the fight. Um, and that also feels like that's a blocker sometimes to imagining different spaces and different ways of being and living and different structures and organizations. And yeah, I struggle with that too. I'm like, you know, am I the kind of person who can see it and like bring it to life? I would say yes, but I don't think I was in a place to do that because I was thinking I could do that inside of those structures that were not set up for that. I was thinking I could bring all that energy and all that vision into those places and do something amazing and, you know, not seeing like the highly kind of like individualistic nature of that, which I'm still doing a lot of unlearning around and how much I really truly love to be in collaboration. Like, it's not even a lie. Like I love working with other people. I feel like, um, I learned from people. That's my experience. And that was a problem with, you know, the hierarchy of the way things are set up in corporate America. It's like somebody's up high and people can't see me. I'm like, you know, hand gesture. <laughs> Someone is up high and kind of delegating to all the people and guiding the ship. And then there are people who are below. And like they're the, when, if the people below have really good ideas, Usually the people above or around engage in theft. Mm-hmm. I have experienced that. Yep. Engage in, you know, um, just like, it's not co- true collaboration. And then you right. become like paranoid and it's this real setup of like the rock star, the superstar, the individual. And I'm not, and that never fit me. I, I, when I had the opportunity to you know, run my own team um, at my last gig, I really try to bring that forward because I really feel like people have superpowers. And that when we all kind of come together and like we all bring our superpowers together, it's like, oh, wow, you're seeing something that I didn't see. You're coming at this thing in a way that I would have never. And I feel like that's a blessing. And I never feel like it like in an extractive way. And I always felt like in kind of like the corporate world, it felt extractive. It's like, we're going to get the quote best and brightest and we're going to come in here and suck everything out of them. Then there are going to be people who, people who are going to be sidelined. And then there are going to be people who will refuse to be sidelined. God bless them. But they're the cost for them to be the exception or be exactly. exceptional is like wild. And I mean, some people are built for that. And and for me, I had a real tension around that. And I think I had to make peace with part of my healing is making peace with me and the way that I want to do things and not like being so external about this is the way it should be because this is what I've seen in the world, you know? Like, totally. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have such an excellent way of kind of putting together like a thesis statement. Um, you know, there was a moment you had in conversation with Amy where you you talked about like that work-life balance and, and how much like a corporate world is aiming to kind of pull everything out of you, take everything from you, be the only thing that you're thinking about. And like, you know, it's not, you talked about how 
It's not that you don't have the ambition or the ability to do that. It's that you want to live a fuller embodied life. Yeah. Um, and I think that the way that you, the way that you described kind of the recognition of superpowers of collaboration and, and avoiding that, like the lie that we've been sold about individualism and that's the way to succeed. Everybody is succeeding on their own. The way that you so like expertly spoke that and tied that up, I think is, is a, is a perfect, uh, perfect way to lead into this conversation that, that you and Amy have. I, I think that the way that you tie everything together is just really, uh, uh, a testament to both your, your skills as a communicator and also your experience, um, and the way that it, it serves so well, what we're, what we're working on here as, as a group, like, um, like I said before, I think Converge is so much improved for having your input and your collaboration and uh, your presence in it. So um, I'm like, I, I really, I'm so thrilled to, to get to collaborate with you on this project at large, on some of the smaller projects that we've been, we've been working on together. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to get to introduce what I think is a fantastic conversation between um, between you and Amy. So, uh, without further ado, I guess I'll tee up uh, a conversation between Michelle McCrary and Amy Yoshitsu. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Hey, Michelle. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am here. I'm up. I'm having like my first coffee in actually my second coffee in a couple of weeks. I got, uh, I got, I got hit with the COVID as you know. Yeah. Um, and just like from that period for like two weeks, two and a half weeks, I just didn't want coffee. So I was drinking tea. Yeah. I was drinking the gorgeous tea that you sent me. Aww. Um, I've been like just savoring it. <laughs> like not too I'll, much. I'll send you more. Don't worry. Drink oh, it. Drink yeah. it. No, I love it. Um, I have plans to make iced tea with it uh, this summer um, and see how that goes. Because I have a lot of fresh uh, herbs in my garden that have survived since last summer when it was like scorching hot. So yeah, I feel like lemon balm. Yeah, made in in that tea or lemon balm and lemon thyme. That and sounds then, great. I ha I love both of those. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad. Yeah, I I like reviewed the material that we had sent each other last night, and I jotted down some questions. Um, I don't know to kick off the conversation, or if you have something, please start. Oh gosh. Um, yeah, no, kick it off. Cause if you let me go, I'll just ramble. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. But, um, one thing that I know we've kind of talked about in the past, but that we both have in common is being only children. Yes. And that's very, like, I think it's more normal now as talking to my friend, like my generation of people will either like not have kids or have one kid. But, and so, so many of my friends are like, what they, you know, they know me and they're like, what's it like being an only child? Did you feel this and this? Cause they're now scared. They had siblings and they're about to have kids. I know you have more than one kid. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's like an open thing. Did you want to talk about that and how maybe that relates to other topics that, you know, we share? Um, yeah. You know, I feel like I was one of those only children 
who always wanted like a brother or a sister. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of cousins, so I wasn't, mm. I didn't really dwell on a lot of that. I had uh, a very <laughs> fraught <laughs> relationship with my cousins on my dad's side. And those are the ones I mainly grew up with. Mm. But um, my cousin on my mom's side, my mom's oldest sister's daughter, she is basically my sister. So I grew, we grew up together, even though she lived in Georgia, I spent all my summers down there and I would be with her, like her little shadow. She's the one who turned me on to Prince really, because she's like the OG Prince and Janet Jackson fan. Mm, okay. Um, it's like That's a little bit older than me, not much. Um, yeah. So that was my sister. She's still, I feel like we've really grown into our relationship even more um, now. So yeah, so I, I felt like I had that impulse, but when I reflect on it, I I always had her. Does that dovetail into your love of music and your early desires to be a music writer? Um, that is mostly my dad too. Oh, okay. My dad um was a very cool dude. <laughs> so he's really he was really cool. Um, he had me when he and my mom got married when they were in their twenties, and they must have had me in their early, early twenties. They must have had me mm-hmm. maybe in their like late twenties. So by the time I was growing up with him as a kid, he was like probably in like the dirty thirties, but he had this really big record collection um, that he had to reestablish because when they were moving from Brooklyn to Queens, somebody stole like a whole bunch of crates of his records. Wow. And only a few of them. That must have been so sad for him. Yeah. He was devastated, but I have very vivid memories of him making me watch. um, We watched Woodstock together. His favorite was Monterey Pop. Yep, um, all about Monterey Pop. Yeah. Over and over. Yep. And then he just had this huge music collection. And I would go down there and just listen to all his records. So he would listen to like Talking Heads, Fleetwood Mac. Um, he and my mom were big Smokey Robinson and the Miracle fans. My mom is a big James Brown fan, and she's the Jimi Hendrix fan. Okay. Um, so I inherited all of his records. Um, so yeah, I really get my love of music from my dad. Um, yeah. And he's the one who turned me on to reading Rolling Stone and he pointed out, um, Ben Fong Torres, who, like, I think we talked about this, like at the time he was like the only like melanated representation that I knew of Mm -hmm. writing like music, like writing about all kinds of music. And he was kind of um, an early model for me before I actually got into the music industry and <laughs> found out what it was really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's that really relates to, like, my dad and how I was raised. I was, when you said, brought up your mom was the Jimi Hendrix fan, that is my dad's idol. And I was raised in a house where there was a giant poster of him, like, six-foot-high poster of him. I love for, it. Until I was you know, till they like repainted the door and they took it down because it was super dirty <laughs> at that point and like when I was 20 or whatever. But yeah, that I I also grew up with my parents talking about Monterey Pop 
and more than Woodstock. But yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, full boomer parents. That's why yes. it's so weird to hear people talk about boomers. I was like, do you really know? Did you really have boomer parents? Because I had boomer parents and like, it's a whole, yeah, they're, yeah, at least from what it sounds like they're that music was such a huge part of their lives. And yeah, I'm grateful that my dad passed it on to me. Also the Fleetwood Mac. I have his original rumors album that I love. Aw, um, yeah. yeah, it's very popular now. You know, they have a resurgence. All the I'm young people so love it. Thrilled! I'm thrilled. <laughs> the children have discovered the White Witch Stevie Nicks. I'm thrilled that the children have discovered um, Kate Bush and like '90s hip hop. Like, I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, Take, yes, get into it, get into and so for you, why did you think music writing, like instead, as opposed to being a musician yourself or some other role around the music industry was like your dream? Um, I just love listening to music and I love those really good in-depth articles about the artists. Mm-hmm. And Benthong Torres is like the be- one of the best to me. Um, when I was growing up of those like really rich profiles that really got at not only the person, but how that, who the artist was kind of Mm -hmm. influenced their creative output. So that really spoke to me. Um, I did not think that I had any musical talent. I tried to learn how to play guitar. Um, and and I, I don't remember sticking with it. I don't know if it was like a money thing or that the guitar teacher went away at school but I didn't really stick with that. And I didn't start um, singing until I went to high school. And I, you, never, I didn't even know you sing. Oh, well, I like to say I can carry a tune. So I, I was in like, we called it Glee Club in high school. And then there was like these small groups that you had to audition for. And I was in a group called the Overtones. And they sang like, you know, pop music kind of stuff, popular music. Um, yeah, so I did that, but I never felt like I want to be in a band or be on stage, like as a musician, I never felt that, but Mm -hmm. I loved the idea of talking to musicians or like writing about music that I loved. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I also, I'm trying to piece together the part of your love for Ben Fong Torres and recognizing him as the only person of color in that space and that experience and like maybe how you felt about potentially being in that role and being a black woman and you know kind of going back to the idea about like labor and being a person of color and what that idea was and how that maybe felt or like maybe fear around it or excitement and then like what you ended up doing. Yeah, I think that um, for me, the process of kind of developing political thought around how I exist in the world personally is like an ongoing project. I think growing up, there was like a an awareness of it. I think every black kid has that awareness. You know, people talk about the talk and mm-hmm. 
I had that, but because of where I grew up, I didn't grow up around any white people. Mm -hmm. So, and like, I had like only a handful of white teachers. So like, I feel like there was like a, like an abstraction to Mm -hmm. my understanding of, um, blackness as viewed through the lens of whiteness if that mm-hmm. and it wasn't until high school that I went to you know all white boarding school that that kind of stuff really became started to crystallize for me mm-hmm. but the piece about Ben Fong Torres like I was aware that he was different mm-hmm. and I knew on some cellular level you know because of the music that I liked and the vast breadth of the music that I liked, it was odd for me to, it would be odd for me to enter into that music world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had an awareness that everybody else who was writing about music was not like Ben Fong Torres. So were you or me? Yeah. And it wasn't until later, like um, I got into the black rock coalition. I feel like my mom still gets gets letters from them nice (laughs) i just was like oh my god okay here are my people so yeah so and then there are writers like candy a crazy horse um who is a black woman um music writer and then danielle smith um you know like yeah so then like the 90s became rich with you know different publications like vibe and honey and there are more models Mm-hmm. But by that time, um, I was interning at Polygram slash Island Records, Island Black Music. Mm. And I, uh, this was like college and uh, I just got really disillusioned. I was sexually harassed. Mm. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I just like, I just like, oh, God, yep. like, God yeah. this business is so gross. I was like, yep. this is gross. Um, and yeah, and I think that those experiences kind of really started to crystallize the fact that, oh yeah, this this terrain, not only is it like very white and very male, but it's also very male-centric, period. Yes. Yes. It's incredibly yes. patriarchal. Yes. Um, if you're, quote, serious about music as a woman and I feel like um inside of fandoms anyway mm-hmm. like <laughs> women are are like tested and mm-hmm. poked in a way that men aren't like oh mm-hmm. are you really into music or oh yeah. are you a real musician it, just yeah. dumb shit like that I um, agree yeah, so I think that that kind of consciousness around what it really meant, um, yeah. I slowly developed just as I grew and kind of like experienced more of the world. And I still feel like I maintain kind of like a little level of naivete around it. Like everything is always a discovery for me. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, it doesn't occur to me initially. And then, like, oh, that's what that is. And then it gets really heavy. <laughs> I mean, that's life. <laughs> like, right. That, and I think that's right. going into things with an open mind, which I appreciate about you. 
Yeah, I try to. And I, and I think, um, you know, when I think about the spaces that I've been and the workspaces that I've been, I think I've always tried to approach it with that open mind, but I've been very aware of how those spaces attempted to limit me yeah. and marginalize me, yes. undermine me. Um, you know, I wound up kind of staying in that music industry track because I wound up, you know, working for, at the time it was MTV networks before they switched over to Viacom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of stayed in that world in a different capacity mm-hmm. doing um, publicity and communications Mm-hmm. And yeah, you see it. You see, you see what um, is valued. Yeah, and and I realize that a lot of those things that are valued are like the toxic outputs of our culture. Yeah, and I was like, I don't, I don't like this, and I always felt like I had a really hard time, like belonging and persevering in that environment because I yeah. felt like I wanted to really change it. And if I yeah. couldn't, then I'm out. And that's yeah. pretty much how I operate. It was like, if I can't influence this in some way to make it better, not only for me, but for everybody else, yeah. I'm not going to let it suck me dry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that. I have so many questions about that specific piece, but I did have like a very specific question going back to your internship um, and also your idea of being a, I, would the idea of being a music writer still in your mind at that point? And is that what kind of changed the path, that internship or that I, time in your life? Yeah. I think that I kind of was also toying with um, the idea of becoming an A&R person, artist and repertoire, yeah. like yeah. finding new talent. Yeah. Um, and I think there was like also a shift away from writing in a way in college for me. I think, um, because I had to approach writing in such a different way, writing papers and all that stuff. And I didn't take a lot of creative writing courses. Um, I just feel like I kind of, uh, put writing on the back burner also because I had the idea in my head I needed to have a real job and I need to have a real career path so I was like oh I could be a psychologist because that's a real job writing is not a real job like it just didn't feel like I I felt like I had to make money because I don't come from money yep I was like I need to make sure that I can pay for myself so that kind of superseded any kind of dreams that I had Yep. Which is pretty insidious when you think about it. Oh, it is. And this is like something I've really been thinking about in trying to express the goals of Converge is the, I, and like, I'd love to unpack this with you if you're interested, the idea that, especially for people of color, the idea of going into a field that is traditionally insecure, such as anything in the arts, et cetera, is uh, not even like one can't even formulate a desire towards that because of all the societal and family responsibilities and structures that are placed upon them. 
and that being its own restriction as opposed to the idea of like if you want it so badly then like you'll do anything but that puts at the expense everything about your identity from where you come from and like things in your family and things that society tells you and just like unpacking that is that's like a goal in itself to help people even dream and go towards that yeah and i think that the supports to the, not only systemic supports, but like like communal supports and familial supports. Yes. I mean, a lot of people, and I think there's also a level of bravery that I think about it now that I definitely didn't have because I was orienting toward the idea of safety that our mm-hmm. culture imparts on us. Like, mm-hmm. to be safe, you must earn money and have a steady job. Mm-hmm. To be safe, you have to engage in certain kinds of behavior because as a person who is who identifies as a woman in a black body, there are things that you can't do that white people could get away with doing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, all those mixed messages swirled in a way that I restricted myself. Yep, And there are still ways that I probably, actually, I know that I continue to do that, but it was, it was definitely with me by the time I got to college, there was like, um, uh, a, like my, the, the way I had been dreaming, you know, growing up in junior high, elementary school, even in high school, um, got limited with that reality is like, Oh, I need to make money and be able to pay for myself. If I want to get an apartment in Manhattan, um, at the time the rents were like to like sublet was like $800 or something. It's like, I need to get money to do that. How am I going to get money to do that? I have to have a real job. So yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that got me early and God bless the people who it doesn't get. And they do get out there and do whatever it takes because those are the artists who I always love and who I'm interested in. And they follow their dream, you know, no matter what. And they just get out there because there's I admire that bravery um, that it takes to be an artist. In this culture specifically. In this culture specifically. Yeah. I mean, I I have so many feelings about that, but did want to ask you specifically about um, when when you made the choice in college, like you said, you didn't do a lot of creative writing classes. Was that, was the safety mindedness part of that decision? I don't remember what you studied. Oh yeah. So shenanigans, college was shenanigans. (laughs) Um, So I went in and I decided I'm going to be a psychology major. Okay. So I decided to go and I was taking all these psychology classes and I got, we had one abnormal psych class and that was yeah. the one class that I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. I love abnormal psych. Like, give me more of this. No more. But we do have statistics, which I hated. I had so much trouble with. I was like, why do I have to do this? I hate. Why am I doing this period? So I decided to throw all that away. And there was another department called American Culture where you could basically, like, design your course structure and what you wanted to study so I started doing that and I was already taking a lot of art history classes because I like doing that um and 
I decided to do all these American culture classes. And a lot of it at the time was studying um, what they call mass media and popular culture. So that's kind okay. of what I stuck yeah. with. And that's what I wound up doing, um, you know, my thesis under that department banner. What was your thesis on? <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to say that. No, no, no. I, I found actually found a draft of my thesis paper when I was at my mom's house last summer. Um, it was um, it was black nationalism and hip hop. Cool. And kind of like I love that. Yeah, it was a mess, but yeah, I did my best. <laughs> Everyone can only do their best, especially at that time. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that that was my thesis paper. And there was like weird shit that happened because at that time, especially at that college, nobody was writing about hip hop. I mm. think Trisha Rose's book, Black Noise, was like the only thing out there that was academic about hip hop. And they were trying to get me to write about sports and the black body. And I was like, what the fuck do I know about sports? Like, Are you fucking kidding me? Excuse my language. Um, I was like, no, this is the thesis that I want to do. It's like, yeah, let me dust off this Gramsci and give you people something <laughs> with this paper. Like, it was so, yeah, it was wild. It was wild, you know, and, and reflecting on that, I was like, wow, look at them trying to limit my study about my own culture and telling yeah. me, like, what's important. And, I mean, God bless Black women, especially in academia, because I couldn't. I, I yeah. would never, I, I, I see why people just, like, go into that area and like burn out and have these horrible experiences because again like all these structures they're just oriented toward just the most destructive just lowest common denominators of kind of dominator culture so yeah it's wild that concludes part one of a conversation between amy yoshitsu and michelle mccrary Part two will be available next week on the same platform on which you're listening now. Bring Your Full Self is put together through the collective effort of the members of Converge Collaborative. Special thanks today to Amy and Michelle and to you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our group, our work, or would just like to say hi, you can reach us by emailing converge at Converge Collaborative or on Instagram at Converge Collaborative.